Welcome to I Fields Community Church Sermon Extra. It's great to have you with us once again this week. I'm here with Pastor Nick Katie, who's the pastor here of Whitefields Community Church here in Longmont, Colorado. And uh, we are, once again, we're back in our series called Desiring the Kingdom. And uh, we were in 2 Kings 15 through 17, lengthy passage, but very, very important part, especially since this, this is the last look we see at the kingdom of Israel. This is the last king uh, before they're taken off into captivity. And the uh, title of, today, uh, of Sunday's message was In Spirit and in Truth. And if you missed that uh, sermon, you can go over to whitefieldschurch.com and you can download it there or any of your favorite uh, podcast platforms, streaming platforms, uh, YouTube, Facebook. You can find them all on those. And if you would, please give us a uh, subscribe or thumbs up or a rate and review. It really helps with the algorithm and getting the content out there, Christ-centered, gospel-centered content. So when people are asking questions about life and about the Lord that, you know, we can, we can provide answers for them from, from the scripture. And so here we are in Second Kings chapter 15 through 17. A lot of stuff that we covered in there and uh, a lot of, of course, in your sermon. But there was this one interesting uh, thing in chapter 16 where King Ahaz, he actually goes to Damascus and when he comes back, he transforms the, 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 the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Jews that they had built to make it look more like what he had seen in the temple in Damascus. And of course, a lot of questions are raised and a lot of parallels are made to, you know, the way Christians sometimes assimilate worldly things into our worship service or into our lives. And there's a lot of debate, a lot of gray areas, a lot of black and white, you know, so I thought we'd talk about that just a little bit more uh, yeah. today. So in chapter 16, just for a little context, this king, his name is Ahaz. He's maybe the worst king of Judah, maybe not the worst. Actually, there's, there's one coming. You guys just hang on. Who's worse than Ahaz? He's one of the worst. And, you know, it says he sacrificed his own child on an altar to Molech is more, most likely the, the god that he sacrificed his child to. And then he, he makes an alliance with Assyria to protect Judah and Jerusalem, who are under attack from some other uh, countries, including the northern kingdom of Israel. And he goes over there to takes this envoy, you know, takes all of the gold from his own house and all of the gold from the temple and gives it to the king of Assyria. And while he's there, you know, you imagine they probably gave him a tour, showed him around, and he sees this temple there in Damascus, and he sees their altar, and he's all, oh man, this is a nice altar. So what he does is he he makes a copy of that altar and then replaces the altar which God had given to the people uh, to, to build, like giving them the, the blueprints, if you will. And he tells them, you know, replace the objects in the temple with these objects and make it look like the temples to the pagan gods in Damascus. Um, as you said, it's interesting because uh, there were a lot of sp specific directions about the temple, the, the Jewish temple and what it was supposed to contain, what the items were supposed to be like. And they were all very symbolic, you know? And so one of the things was that their their temple, their altars were not supposed to be ornate. They were supposed to be simple. Uh, if you remember back to early times, they would talk about they must be earthen, they must be just stone, uncut stone, right? They were not to be decorative, lest the attention be drawn away from the Lord and to the beauty of the items. And so we see him just kind of 
getting rid of that and changing the transforming the temple to look more like the pagan temples we know that later on uh, they even stopped uh, allowing sacrifices in the temple and beyond that um, you know they later on even even further down as we'll go on they bring pagan idols into the temple um, but this is kind of the first step towards that in that direction and um, what's really alarming is that it says that Ahaz did this in deference. Uh, he was deferring to the king of Assyria. In other words, he did it to make him happy, to please him. And I think that that's where we bring in the parallel with, um, you know, how does that apply to, to worship today and Christian churches, you know, and, and this issue of like, okay, you know, we've got all this technology. How do we use that technology in a way that furthers our mission without losing our soul, so to say. And is there a line that you can cross where you cross a line where you have become, let's say, too worldly or too much like the world, um, you know, by incorporating not just the, not just the technology, but let's say musical styles, um, styles of, of worship, like our order of service or our liturgy? Are we, you know, at what point, where is the line? Because, I mean, think about different denominations historically have drawn that line at different places, right? Mm -hmm. You have... And divided <laughs> over yeah, those. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah I mean, you have, uh, and, and we could talk about some of that. I mean, it, mm -hmm. goes, it goes back to the Reformation and, and even to before the Reformation. But, you know, think about like the Amish, right? They'd say, well, to be faithfully Christian is to not be like the world. And what does the world do? Well, they use motors, they use electricity, et cetera. So we're not going to use any of those things. Things, so we're not like the world. Yeah, you know, A.W. Tozer back in the day, he said this this quote that always sticks with me. He always he said, "If Christians start watching movies, there will be no difference between Christians and non-Christians." And I always thought, I really hope that that's not the extent of the difference between Christians and non-Christians. And then, what do you make of the Christian movie industry? I mean, are they? Or, yeah. or let's say contemporary, rebellion. yeah, <laughs> contemporary <laughs> Christian toes. music. Should we be yeah. uh, embracing the internet? Should we be pushing it away? What should our church services look like? Should we be singing songs from hundreds of years ago, or should we be singing songs that are in a more modern style? Mike, please sort it all out for us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, are we supposed to be singing modern songs or old songs? I remember in Hungary talking to a young guy who was in seminary, reform seminary. He's like, why do we need to write new music? We have 500 years of tradition of hymns to sing, you know? So you do certainly have that, those ideas. And, I, and you know, and it brings in those theo theological terms that, you know, we come across the regulative, regulative principle and normative principle, meaning... Regulative would be we only follow what is found in Scripture basically to the letter. And normative principle is like, well, if the Lord doesn't say any, if it's not specifically spelled out for us in, you know, in Scripture, then we have leeway to apply principles. You know? so, so let's talk about how that played out in the Reformation period. Well, in the, in the Reformation period, well, even in there, I mean, the regular principle came from that, but I would say even in reform circles, they're split, you know? I mean, Luther and Calvin didn't agree with each other at all. I think uh, Calvin uh, 
moved away from instruments, where Luther embraced instruments. Yeah, Luther essentially said, um, well, he loved music. Oh, he loved it. And yeah. uh, he said, if you don't like music, you don't deserve, like... Yeah, I had that quote, something like you're a something braying pig. Yeah, you, you, know? you deserve to listen to the braying of pigs, pigs if you yeah. don't like music. And this was the introduction to a hymnal. Yeah, to his <laughs> hymnal. Yeah, he he's passionate. like, music is great and, and organs are great. And basically he said, hey, look, if the Bible doesn't forbid it, then we have leeway. We have freedom to choose. Right. And, and I think, I mean, I understand how people have come to this position. If you look at scripture and you brought up the temple, God was very specific to the children of Israel in detail how the, 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 the not necessarily the temple, but how the tabernacle was supposed to look to, to the size dimensions, what was supposed to be in there, how it was supposed to look. And it was supposed to be done in excellence and all of that kind of stuff. So there's this idea that, you know, that God was very specific about that. And when, when we see when David didn't follow instructions, bringing the ark back to the, uh, the, you know, back to Jerusalem, that God rained judgment upon, you know, when they reached out and grabbed it in the wrong way. You know, God was very specific. And so you can see how we can take away from that. But the question is how much of that now has moved into, you know, our modern day, you know, are we here sitting on a, a modern stage in modern chairs with lights, cameras and speaking into microphones using the internet? Are we somehow going against what the Lord is? This that looks like nothing like the temple of the Old Testament. And so how do we apply that? You know, and I think that's been the question of ages. You know, I think maybe we probably fall into the normative principles, you know, side of, of that argument. But, you know, the question is how how far do we take that? Because I've heard, you know, extremes like you know, because instruments were not mentioned in the Holy of Holies, since that curtain has been torn in two and we now have access by grace, we can go to the throne of God into the Holy of Holies. There's, there were no instruments mentioned, so we should not bring, bring instruments into our worship. You know, and and so there are people that follow that. There's uh, we, you know, there are those that say, well, you can only sing the Psalms because the Psalms are the hymn book of the Christian people. Those are the things that God gave to us, and and the, only those. So you have churches that are Psalms only. They only sing from the Psalms. Um, you know, and so it's the question is, you know. Where do we fall in, you know, in, in that category and who's right and who's wrong? And as we said, you know, many denominations, you know, the centuries are littered with denominations who have taken firm stands on what they believe is the correct way to worship, you know. And we discussed that on Sunday as well. What does it mean to worship in spirit and truth? And I'm sure that sheds light on the topic as well, you know. So, I don't know, you have churches nowadays that, you know, they're bringing... You know, along the lines of, uh, you know, what you were talking about, him bringing stuff back from Damascus, you know, they're bringing all kinds of music into the church, you know, singing Smells Like Teen Spirit from Nirvana on Sunday mornings. And they, in their paradigm, believe that is the way they can reach, you know, the, the lost, you know, and bring them into, you know, so what's, you know, what do you do with that? You know, that's mm -hmm. the other side of the coin. Yeah, and so, you know, going, going back to this idea of, like, only singing hymns, right? I think this is an interesting argument because essentially what, what they're saying is that they believe that um, a certain time period, uh, we should live culturally in a certain time period. Those songs came out of a certain time period. And to say that uh, we shouldn't be 
writing new songs or having anything contemporary. It's basically trying to canonize a certain time period and say, oh, that's when, you know, those were really good. We, we're done now and we don't need to do any more, um, which, which I think is, is, uh, is a bit of an odd argument because it's not like those songs are 2,000 years old. They're maybe 300 years old. And to assume that 300-year-old songs are somehow better than contemporary songs seems a bit misguided to me. And yeah, and a lot of, you know, what Luther introduced, you know, what, you know, and the things he, he, um, they say, well, he made Christian songs out of the, those, the bar tunes those days. And people like to, you know, hype that up a bit. He used bar music. Uh, but if you study music, especially in that time period, there was a lot of, you know, folk music has been something through the ages that has been uh, music that's been used to tell stories. And folk music is not, in a sense, it's not very unique. There's tune. There are just you know five or six tunes right. that people sing. I mean, if you look at an Irish hymnal, it will tell you. It'll give you the name of the hymn, and at the top right-hand corner, it'll say to tune number six. Right. And uh, you know, basically, it's like you are going to sing these words to this tune, and they might have ten, twelve tunes that they they sing to. Now, of course, we've evolved. You know, well, you know, some might say the music sounds the same completely all the time, but. You know, so to say that he put it to bar songs, just as to say he was using the music of the day, the, that folk music was spoken of, you know, and you and I in Hungary, if you've ever been to a Hungarian restaurant and the, the, the gypsy band comes over and plays, they, they'll sing 10, 10 folk songs to you and they're telling you a story, but it all kind of sounds the same. And it's a little bit, it's a little bit similar in that, that, that sense, you know, so. We have our own version, four chords and uh you know, four chords. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, it's in the in, yeah. in in the church we have you. Know, yeah, every worship song is four chords. But yeah. you know, and to that point, why is it four chords? Is because we, as a congregation, we want to worship together. Now, yeah. if I get all complicated and throw thirteen chords at you with all kinds of crazy jazz things, and people have headaches by the end of times, they wonder how all that fits together, and then we've not accomplished our goal. Seems um, that, that that really does get to, and I mean, this is the whole idea: spirit and truth, right? right. It's we want to worship spiritually and we want to worship in truth and it does get to the the point like we said with the deference to the king of Assyria what is your purpose what is your goal it seems that if your goal is really to defer to the world let's say um, then that's a, that's probably the wrong way to go right if you're trying to win the approval of the world but if on the other hand you're really trying to pursue God and, uh, you know, write songs that glorify him, write songs that get the congregation involved and focused on him. That seems good. You know, one of the things I've heard you say, which I would want people to hear is that, uh, one of the arguments, you know, about using, uh, old hymns, oh man, they were so theologically rich. What would you say to that? I would say yes, but I would also say that in my experience, I've, I, many times I've found that people find they're nostalgic. That is the that is the uh, the you know the atmosphere they grew up in is singing hymns, and that's where they feel comfortable. They know the words, you know. And if you know the words to the song, you feel comfortable. And you know we have many generations in our church, and they they come from 
those different generations of music. And so those songs, if I sing a song from the 80s or I sing a song from the 70s or not, you know, I will have people comment on, you know, oh, I really love that song. And you just need to look at them at their age. And that was the, that was the time that their formative years that they grew up in the church or they might have got saved. Or those are the songs. You know, there's no, I love hymns, but there's great theologically rich modern songs that we sing today that are just as good. And there's some pretty bad hymns yeah. as well. Right. So, I mean, I, it's just it's an effect. It's called yeah. the greatest hits effect. This yeah. is true. Like if you go into a record store today, if you can find one, good luck, yeah. right? <laughs> but if you were to go into a record store and they have a section, the 1970s, well, they're not going to have all the music from the 1970s. They're going to have kind of the best music from the 1970s and all the bad music, which I assume there was some. I wasn't alive yet. But if there was some, uh, I assume that's not going to make it into the store in these days, right? It becomes the greatest hits effect. And I think the same thing happens with, with hymns. There were thousands of hymns. They weren't all good. We kept the best ones and we keep singing them because they're good. But you know what? There's a lot of, uh, a lot of music today that isn't going to be sung in 20 years from now because it's not that great, but there are some really good theologically rich songs. And I think that actually, I mean, that's one of the things I really appreciate about what you do is that you put a lot of thought into, um, making sure the songs we sing are theologically sound, not just sound, but rich. And, um, I mean, I would tell people like notice, like the songs we're singing, these are great truths. I mean, just last week, the week before, right? your son sang a song. And he said, I like this song because we're singing the gospel, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that's, that's it. Yeah, right no, I love that song. It's a great song. And a lot of people have commented on that song. And it's just a great, from beginning to end, you're just singing the story. And yeah. it's, a, it's the gospel from beginning to end. And that's what he said, sing the gospel with me. And it's, you know, draws, draws people in. And I think one of the things that plays into that is just patience, uh, just waiting. Don't, don't be jumping on the latest, newest, hippest song bandwagon wait, give it some time, you know. I was kind of that with Waymaker, you know. Waymaker was, it's probably been, you know, by the time I jump on the bandwagon, the song's been like three or four years old. Everybody's killed it. But there was a time and a place, and I, I just, I heard it at a conference in a, in a certain context, and then it just clicked with me. And and then I just, there was just a time at the church, I'm like, this is, we really need this song right now. We need to people that, God's doing a work. He's working here. He's working people's hearts. And and because in the the lyrics, people were discussing, well, is he working in everybody's heart? And I'm like, I believe he is. At, in, at some level, if you're in this church, you're sitting in here and God's presence is with us. For me as a worship leader, I have faith that God is speaking to you. Now, you might be resisting what he's telling you, but he's, he's certainly working because we have a God that's not passive. He is always active in, in Sunday mornings, and we really believe that, you know, that God's word does not return void. And that if you're sitting out there and you're here, that God is speaking to your heart, you know. So, I mean, I put it all together. I thought through the words, and I thought through some of the arguments, and... I'm like, this is a song. And I had a lot of, you know, feedback. People just wrote me texts. Oh, thank you for singing that song. I needed to hear it. And, you know, people certainly connected, connect with, connect with. Some of the harder songs, of course, you just like, you, you work through it, you know. Christ, my hope and life and death, you know. It's a lot of words, but it's a song I keep doing because, you know, people need to take those words home as well. And I think sometimes worship leaders 
get, you know, they get scared when the song doesn't hit, you know, the first time and people are singing the chorus the first time around. They're like, that was a failure. You know, some songs you got to work at it. You got to keep doing it because you're, you're trying to bring your congregation. You're trying to feed them the word. And, and sometimes it takes a long time to do that, you know. And so that all fits within that kind of paradigm. And I, I think just, you know, to kind of, you know, to go back to a point just about, you know, what is the line? I think, I think when we forget that the Spirit of God is the one who does the work and we rely on the world to make church happen on Sunday mornings. I think that's when you've crossed the line. I think some churches have done that, especially going out, getting, you know, paying non-believers to come on your stage so that you can pull off certain kinds of music. And I think that's crossing the line. I think you you shouldn't be doing that kind of thing. You know, I think singing non-Christian songs in, in a church environment where we're here to worship together, I think that's crossing a line. Uh, you now, if you do that in evangelistic context and the song has, you know, I have a friend back in Hungary and he does it so well. He'll use specific songs that have specific words. And then he preaches a gospel message point based on that song. So he uses it as a magnet and then he hits them with the gospel. You know, um, you know, in an evangelistic sense, when you're looking at 500 people who don't know the Lord and they've got their beers in their hand, <laughs> what are you going to say, you know? But in church, I think it's, it's very, very, very different. And I think, you know, when we are relying on those kind of things, well, you have to have those things. I have to have a certain kind of PowerPoint presentation. I have to have lights. I have to have. Or we're not going to be successful. I think we've crossed the line. Then I think we've brought things into the church that we are relying on, like King Ahaz did. We have molded the church into the image of the world instead of letting God mold us into his image and make our church the way he wants, you know, to reach Longmont. That may be different than the other church down the street. You know, it's, it's going to change. But I think, yeah, that's where we've kind of crossed the line, I think. Oh, there we go. We said it all this morning. So great you were, you were here with us. If you missed the sermon, whitefieldschurch.com. If you this is something that blessed you and something you, uh, you know, God spoke to you through this, please take some time to share, subscribe, hit the like button. And uh, we look forward to seeing you next week. God bless.